Hello and welcome to Starting Over with Shannon. This is a podcast about fresh starts, new chapters and embracing change and challenge to become a better version of ourselves and create a better world around us. I'm your host Shannon Jenkins and every week I'll be bringing you a different starting over story with tips on how to conquer life's difficulties to find greater joy, meaning and purpose. Hey and welcome. This is honestly one of my favorite episodes to date and if you are somebody who has anxious tendencies like myself and someone who might be struggling with overwhelm, stress or anxiety, this is without question the episode that you need to listen to today. Our guest is a brilliant majorly accomplished and super down-to-earth Harvard-based psychotherapist, author, and speaker, Dr. Luana Marquez. And she shares with you today her tried and tested method to get you out of a rut and find the courage to create a more meaningful and confident life. And a problem that we cover extensively here is something you probably don't even realize you do to the extent that you do. Me too. Hands up here. And that something is called psychological avoidance. In fact, I just did it today by avoiding doing that very task that I was supposed to do and deciding to clean instead. Because you know what I mean? Like it's still productive, right? Procrastination. Avoidance. Of which there are many types. And we go into a lot of them on this episode. Which also, spoiler alert, only amplifies the anxiety that you feel. Now, before I dive into our conversation, I would just like to spare a moment to sincerely thank each and every one of you who tune into this podcast and are part of this Starting Over community. You know, those of you who are bravely facing yourselves and embracing change and uncertainty and challenges in life. And I still have this big pinch me moment that I get to speak with people like Dr. Luana, like amazing. I can't believe I do this. What? So thank you because this wouldn't be possible without you. So every share with a friend, every repost on social media, every inspired conversation, it makes such a difference. So please do keep on sharing. I'm super, super grateful. But with no further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Luana. Dr. Luana, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Starting Over with Shannon. I said this before and I'm going to say it again. I genuinely really loved your book. Like it was one of those books that I read that I thought, wow, this is hitting home into something that we all do, which we're going to come into in psychological avoidance. I don't think I'd ever thought about these topics in the way that you describe them. And yet you weave in all of this beautiful wisdom from your grandmother, from your mother, stories from your personal life. And then all of the psychological research that backs all of this up. So very much looking forward to hearing your expertise and sharing some stories. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here today. So a lot of this podcast is about, as the name suggests, starting over and people coping with changes in in life, whether that's something that they are doing by choice or whether life has thrown something unexpected 
at them. And you seem to have had quite a few starting overs in your lifetime, even from moving from Brazil to the United States. Can you share with us maybe perhaps a couple of starting overs that you have had? For sure, um, Shannon. I, you're absolutely right. So it's interesting because the reason I agree to say yes to this is because I think starting over is, is part of life, right? We are all in constant transition. We are always in many ways fighting them. I think for me, the first starting over was very young. Um, so I grew up in Brazil, as you said, with a single mother, my mom taking care of my sister and I. And early on, it was particularly challenging. There was a lot of trauma and adversity in our lives. But my mom had this vision that education perhaps could get us out of there. And so she got me to move to a bigger city and um, live with my grandmother. And so I moved from the city that had about 200,000 people to millions of people. And really was the first time in my life that I had to figure out who am I and how do I belong here. And I was only 15. I, looking back at it today, when I look at 15-year-olds, I'm like, what? But, you know, I, I was, my brain sort of failed me right away and told me things like strangers are scary. People are not going to like you. You come from a small town. And that's something, you know, I shared that story from the offset because it's something I see over and over again when we're starting over, our brain does not like it. And mine at 15 got stuck on this narrative and had my grandmother not seen the bigger picture and, and knew how to get me unstuck, I, I don't know if I would be here with you today. Yeah, you're speaking the truth right there. And your grandmother was a very important person in your life, wasn't she? I remember you recount a story in your book about how you had sort of social anxiety and you were fearful of putting yourself out there. And she noticed that and gently slash forcefully pushed you into those situations, <laughs> right? Yeah. I, 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 you know, it's funny because I today do that to many people and they say, you're forcing me. And I'm like, well, I'm just suggesting it. But that's what she did Suggesting for me. Suggesting strongly. Yeah. <laughs> Not giving you an out, really. Um, but, you know, she, she caught it. She caught that I was avoiding making friends. I was avoiding inviting people over. And before that, I had been a very, very social person. And so she invited me to go to the mall and talk to strangers. And to your point, um, I didn't feel like it was an invitation. When I understood her agenda, I was terrified. But when I got to graduate school many, many years later, I realized that that is at the core of what's known as exposure therapy, which is the idea that we can actually train our brain to face our fears and approach instead of avoid in a specific way. It's not a just do it um, that works for Nike, does not work for the brain. It is really sort of slowly going towards things. And so I really think to your point of starting over, that was the first time that I got a sense of like, oh, I can hit a wall and, and start over transition. And I don't remember how many times we went to the mall. I don't remember how many times she got me to do that. What I remember is I learned that I didn't have to be stuck on my thoughts and my fears. And, and that changed the trajectory of my life for sure. Amazing. And tell us a little bit about the trajectory that you then went on, moving from Brazil to the States, getting into psychology. And now yes. an author. And now an author, I know. It's still new to me. That one still gets me a heartbeat. So I eventually realized that I wanted to come to the U.S. first as an exchange student. I wanted to learn English. I had this clear vision that if I knew English, my 
life would be better, that I'd have more opportunities. But I fell in love with it. I loved my host family. I loved, I loved the idea. I think what I loved first about the U.S. was this idea that if I worked hard, perhaps I wouldn't be stuck in poverty. This, this idea of the old American dream that if you actually worked really hard, the outcome would be good. And I think in high school, I got that sense because I came here speaking no English, like no English. And by the end of the year, I was fluent with very little accent. And I was like, wow, I can do this. And eventually got back to the US, um, got into graduate school, um, and then ended up there at Harvard Medical School. I've been here for the last nearly 20 years. Um, and my mission today, and I guess in the last 20 years, has been how do we get psychology out of the ivory tower on the streets? How do we teach skills, not therapy, right? Imagine if everyone would have known what my grandmother taught me at those transitions moments in their life, in the moments that they need to start over. And that's um, what drives me today through that journey. Absolutely. And, you know, something that I particularly loved your honesty in your book here, and you described you had already had your position at Harvard, and yet you said you still were plagued with that sense of not enoughness and could trace that back to your childhood. Can you speak to that a little? Because I I found myself in that. I know so many people listening find themselves in that too. It's interesting because all of us have our our stories, our narratives um, guide the way we see the world. Psychologists like to use big terms and this one's called um, your core beliefs. And basically think about this just as the lenses by which we see the world. And so for me as a little girl growing up, whereas trauma at home, my parents eventually getting divorced, feeling like my father had abandoned us, I felt strongly that I had failed. That if I had fought harder for my mom, if I had been a better student or a better person, that something could have been different. And so as a young kid, I interpreted um, that I wasn't enough. And so the lenses by which I saw the world was I'm not enough. And so the way I managed that was by doing more and more and more. How do I become enough? The problem is it's a distorted lenses and it's impossible to do enough, right? You have to just be enough. But early on in my career, you know, because I had that vulnerability, I focused on ambition. I just went and I did more and I did more and I did more. And I, I will say the truth is early on, it was great. I loved it. Like it wasn't a problem, but there was a point in my career that the doing more was no longer helping me. The doing more was hurting me, but because I had that vulnerability, I didn't know how to stop. I just kept going almost as if I did the same thing again and again, I'd now find joy or I'd overcome, I'd be enough. And eventually I hit a wall. Mm, What was that wall? It was about two years ago. It was actually what led to writing the book. I um, really was in the situation that I felt like I didn't belong within the system anymore. The the values for, you know, the, the hospital and working there were not consistent with what I wanted anymore. And so I realized that doing more wasn't going to do it. And, and I had one particular event, which I describe in the book, which was a conflict with a superior who broke my trust. And that was just enough for me to go, I can't do this anymore. Like I can't just continue to follow goals without a 
value behind it. I can't belong in a culture where I can't show up as me. And I think it was the moment that I realized that I was just running for myself and trying to prove I was enough when, you know, if I looked at it, I'm associate professor, have a medical school. I've run a research lab. I've written 170 papers. When I say this out loud, it's like, what the hell was I thinking? <laughs> right? But, yeah, what hope do the rest of us have, Dr. Luana, honestly? <laughs> I, I, and, and this is it. But, but you know, I, I, I say this yeah. because I, I got stuck on that and I worked with hundreds of people that are successful and hundreds of people is their beginning. And the thing is, if the vulnerability is there, it doesn't matter what it is. Of course. Like, we distort mm. it and it's so painful. And so I, I say all of this to say, today I think about, can we be enough as we are? Can we understand that another paper or another accolade doesn't actually change my vulnerability as a little girl who grew up in trauma and adversity? Yeah. I love how you say that, how to be enough rather than becoming enough, because it's the constant striving. And like you say, you I think we all have that experience of hitting a wall at some point and going, wow. That's, but that's the cause to pause, I find. And rather than shying away from that, I think we should open ourselves up, get curious and investigate more closely. Absolutely, Shannon. And, and perhaps there is a way to pause before we hit the wall, right? Perhaps there is this, you know, I, I believe this so strongly that I say this in, in the book. I, I think pause is our superpower that we don't use. That we are in a society, as you said a minute ago, that is go, go, go. But then we're sort of driving ambulance, not sure where we're going and why we're going there. And I think this idea of pausing and reflecting before the wall could save us so much pain. Totally agreed. And, you know, it makes me think I was looking at some job uh, adverts recently and I commonly saw as one of the criteria a sense of urgency and I realize this is where we're going wrong. We, so we say that in terms of, oh, well, this, this is going to lead us to find somebody who's efficient and productive. And I read that as being, this is a recipe for anxiety, overwhelm, and burnout. Like, how are we creating a society like this? So needless to say, I clicked off that. <laughs> Not applying for that kind of job. I, no, I, I, I have to pause here because... It saddens my heart that to this day, companies believe that that's the solution to being productive when there's so much data that suggests that's the opposite, right? When you're able to have cohesive teams that work well together, that have work-life boundaries, I'm not even talking about balance, but boundaries, and that people are having joy in all aspects of their life, they can respond to urgency. But like, unless you're doing brain surgery, let's knock out a sense of urgency. That seems just like exactly. unnecessary. Exactly. Exactly. So this key person in your life was your grandmother, as you described, and she instilled in you really two important lessons, which you describe as being one, approach and not avoid, and second, be the water, not the rock. I'd love to break down these two lessons. Yeah, let's take the first one because... It is perhaps the mantra of my life. And if I had to choose one skill in the book to say to everybody, this is the core of my success would be approach, not avoid. You know, 
I, I shared already the idea that she forced me to go to the mall and talk to strangers. And the first time it was disastrous. I, she, she had this cute idea of inviting me to have Chinese food. I had never had Chinese food before. I am at the mall with her. I can smell the Chinese food. It's beautiful. And then she says, oh, well, let's go talk to that gentleman over there. He looks like he wants to talk to us. And to this day, Shannon, like my stomach drops. I remembered it. That Chinese food smell like rumbles up and it's like, what the F are you talking about? I want to talk to anybody on Chinese food. And it, it is the one day that's burned on my memory is that first day where she like forced me to do it. And I remember very little of it. But she did a couple of things really smart. She didn't ask me to talk to the 16-year-old hot guy that was there. She asked me to talk to the old gentleman. Now, I asked my grandmother, who is, you know, in her 90s now and not completely with it. And she's like, well, it just seemed more reasonable to talk to the older gentleman. And so somehow she knew in her brain that that wasn't going to threaten me. And, and that is the idea behind approach not avoid, is that we, we are biologically wired to walk away from discomfort. And our brain, as smart as it is, cannot differentiate real threat from perceived threat. And so in my brain, that old, lovely gentleman was like a lion, and I wanted to run away. And biologically, it makes sense I would want to run away, right? My grandmother then says, no, let's go for it. And the idea here is that we need to approach in a way that our brain can tolerate. So as a skill, this means that if you're terrified to go on a date, for example, imagine that you have some social anxiety and dating something that's hard for you, you're going to do all or nothing. Either you're going to white knuckle through dates or you're going to avoid them completely. Could you do something like have a conversation with somebody over text for a few weeks, then have a limited coffee with that person or, you know, talk to a bunch of strangers before you go on dates. Can you sort of slowly take steps towards the thing that's fearful by breaking it down in small steps? And the way I think about this, Shannon, is the same way we can't build a six pack overnight even though, you know, something sell you can. I, like, I never seen anybody do it. Clickbait, clickbait. Exactly. <laughs> you can't do it. Right? Like you cannot no. build cognitive flexibility and ability to tolerate discomfort overnight. And so in approach, not avoid, is really the idea of opposite action. Anxiety makes you want to avoid, go towards that discomfort slowly. And this applies to everything in our lives right? Getting a job interview, asking for a raise, telling your partner that you are a little upset at them, reprimanding your kids, anything that makes you anxious, you tend to want to walk away. My grandmother taught me, and today, like there are moments, there's this moment, I'll share one last moment and I'll pause, but a couple of years ago, I wanted to be president of a national association in the U.S., and I had just had my son, and Jake was five. They called me and said, you know, I sit and the board is running and there was a couple of people running. Do you want to run? And I said, sure. And I was super excited. The night before the election, I went for dinner with a colleague, a senior colleague, a woman. And she like was really mean, actually. She said things like, you just had a baby at home. You shouldn't run for this. The other person's an older gentleman. He should win. You're going to be a bad mother if you don't want to do this, if you, if you do this. And like, she, she literally... It made me so anxious that I got home and said to my husband, David, I was like, I shouldn't do it. 
Like, I just, I, I, I'm too young and maybe I shouldn't do it. He's more prepared. And my husband looked at me and it's like, are you sure? Like, since I've met you, one of this. And then in that moment, I heard my grandmother going, approach, not avoid. If you don't try, you don't know. That gave me chills. Yes. And, and so I did and I won. <laughs> yes. And, and this is, I think that's why it's so important in my life because it wasn't a lesson at 15. It's a lesson in a lifetime. Absolutely. And I actually love also that you mention your husband in him here because, you know, a lot of us have those self-doubting moments where we, somebody else's voice gets in our head and it activates those core beliefs that you mentioned right at the very beginning that tell us I'm, I'm not good enough. I'm not capable of doing this. And that voice then rises up and takes control sometimes. But you actually having that voice there, somebody else to say, are you sure to question mm -hmm. it a little bit, to give that perspective. I love that because we don't always have to do this on our own. There are people that can be gentle, kind soundboards for us. A hundred percent. And you know, we know the best um, buffer against any kind of mental illness or struggle is social support. And those that love us, our best mirrors, our best supporters, that they, they are the people that bring us down from that, as you said, doubt and, and thinking we're not enough because they are cheerleaders at the end of it. That's it. And let's go over to the second lesson. So be the water, not the rock. So this is really applicable to the theme of your podcast, which is starting over. My grandmother early on said to me that there were two types of people in the world. Now, that might be very simplistic today, but it stuck with me that whenever life threw a wrench or got difficult or we had to start over, there are the folks that function a lot more like the rock. They hold on to what they have what they know, they double down and they do not want change. They fight that transition, they fight starting over. If they are forced to start over, they wanna start over the same way. The same kind of house they had, the same kind of job they had, the same kind of relationship. So they be behave in a very rigid kind of way. And of course, in that case, what we're trying to do is manage our uncertainty, right? And we do it by just literally becoming a rock. Then she said the other type of people are the people that when life changes, when there are diversities, when you're starting over, you are much more like the water. So if there is an obstacle, you go around it, you go underneath it, you go blow it. You're always flowing, you never stopped. And the reason I like this is because this vision of they're gonna be rocks, the way I see my brain is a life will throw rocks in front of you. And then at that moment you have a choice. Right. And and that choice is important because most of us don't give ourselves the even the concept that we have a choice. We just believe that like now I have to like react. But this idea that you can flow with change um, is is to me really powerful. It makes me think of Deepak Chopra's work and this idea of like, can we sit with uncertainty? Can we actually revel in uncertainty? And I know it's hard. But my entire life, and in fact, I think the reason I was successful where I am, which is a majority white, men-driven um, you know, world, is that whenever I was told no, or whenever I was told I couldn't do it, I was like, well, is there another way around this? And, and not to bypass the rules, but to say, you know what, I don't have to take this as just, you know, I can't do it. How can I do it? How do I get what I want? 
And so I try to flow past lives. I'm not always successful. I can't say some moments I'm more like a frozen river, um, but there's water there somewhere. Yeah, I love it. It reminds me of, I wrote down a quote by an author that I love, Margaret Atwood. And she was the first person, really, I came across this idea of water and being more in flow. And she says, water does not resist, water flows. When you plunge your hand into it, all you feel is a caress. Water is not a solid wall. It won't stop you, but water always goes where it wants to go and nothing in the end can stand against it. Water is patient. Dripping water wears away a stone. And remember that you are half water. If you can't go through an obstacle, go around it. Love and it. I had that, I had that, I think, as one of the backgrounds of the screensaver, you know, on my phone, because I was like, wow, yes, like at this moment where I'm feeling just face, I'm facing the wall. I don't, I don't see the path. I don't know where to go next. It's like the pause, the step back. And the way I see the water is also, it's calmer. You know, mm -hmm. it's like the, the energy that we carry in that leads us to force and muscle, white knuckle our way through everything. It's mm -hmm. brute force and strength. There's nothing soft and gentle in it. And sometimes that can lead us to worse outcomes, I find. A hundred percent. I I love that quote. You're going to have to send it to me because I won't remember fully, but I love it. No. Um, I love it. And, you know, as a little kid, um, whenever I was in the ocean, I love the big waves, but what I would do is go underneath it. And then when it, the wave would start to crest, I just like go really deep. And then I would open my eyes and see that mess on top of me, but it was so quiet down there. And that's a vision that I have is like the chaos can exist, but I don't have to be. In fact, if you're in the middle of a wave, it hurts quite a bit. Um, I've got caught there a few times. And so this idea of going deep enough and, and, and to your point, not trying to just muscle through it, I think it's, it's, it's a way of being. It's, it's at the end of it, cognitive flexibility. That's it. And you said it right there with the, the being. You know, we focus so heavily on the doing and everything that's horizontal, external, outwards to us rather than approaching it from a grounded, centered way of being. Mm -hmm. That's and exactly I wonder, right. Can't we do both? I think that's really the way forward is like not getting lost in all of the overwhelming action and learning how to bring this this calm and this groundedness with it. Yeah. I think it's a practice, right? I yes. um you know, I tend to flow very well, but the last 48 hours I've had lots of transitions in my life and lots of things coming at me. And for 48 hours, I was sort of frozen in fear and really feeling stuck and unsure. And then he took this moment of like, okay, I'm going to meditate. I'm going to take a breath this morning. I'm going to stop fixing because there's nothing to fix to then allow it to sort of happen a little bit for that anxiety and fear to come down enough so that I could go back to being. Um, and so I think it's that yo-yo of being and doing and the the fastest we can catch when we get stuck and going back to sort of dropping an anchor, you know, being in the present, flowing like the water, whatever we want to use. I think the more happiness we have, and and I, I don't know, for me, what it feels like, it's more alive. Like that's how I feel. I feel more alive. I feel more present. Like I can be. Absolutely. Me too. I feel exactly the same way. And when I notice that anxiety mounting, which I often have, and it's linked with, you know, my thoughts about the future and stress and where it, how it's going to work out and all of that. 
I remember to just do one thing at a time and focus fully on what I'm doing at that moment. And that's the definition of being mindful. I think sometimes people think that in order to be mindful, you have to do things very slowly, but you don't have to. You just have to be present with what you're doing right now. That's absolutely right. That's exactly what I did right before I came on this podcast. I sat down and I was like, phone off. I'm here to just do this. And 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 that to me, you're right. It's not slowing down, is being present non-judgmentally. Exactly. And life doesn't just fly past us if we do that as well. Always mm-hmm. chasing, chasing something that is going to happen that hasn't happened yet. We're not living our life. Like, what is this? <laughs> I'm with you. Yes. So let's talk about the big, big theme in your book of psychological avoidance. And let's go straight to the definition that you use to explain this. Psychological avoidance is anything that we do that brings our emotional temperature down really quickly, but long-term gets us stuck. Think about this as a quick fix. Whatever it is, you're feeling anxious, you're feeling stressed, and you reach for a glass of wine. You don't respond to an email. You raise your voice to somebody. And in that moment, that reaction tends to make you feel better. The problem is long-term gets you stuck. So if we go back to my grandmother's example, had she not caught it, I probably would have developed social phobia, as you said. She caught this early enough that my avoidance probably was three, four months I was living with her, and she caught this, and she forced me to approach and not avoid. But what I've seen now, 20 years as a clinical psychologist, if we don't catch that, then what happens? You develop social anxiety. Right? If you don't catch it in your marriage, it leads to conflict at a minimal, if not divorce. If you don't catch at work, I had a great friend who called me a couple of weeks ago and said, I just got fired. I was like, what? Like, you haven't even told me that work was bad. And she's like, well, I didn't want to talk about it because if I talked about it, then you know I was upset. So I just said it, that maybe I just would pretend it didn't happen. I was like, but you just got fired. She's like, well, I was miserable. So it's probably a good thing. But she avoided that reality so much, right, that the consequence of that avoidance led to the worst outcome she expected, which eventually happened. Yes. And you're illustrating really the the possible severity of it, because I think when at first you could think, oh, it's quite light, you know, sure, I have that extra glass of wine or I'm feeling a bit stressed right now, so I'm going to, well, procrastinate. I'm sure all of us have done this, like, oh, I'm going to do it later. I'll just clean instead. That's still productive. (laughs) Right? Yeah, but it's the point where we go, ah, yeah, I'm really self-sabotaging here and I'm not getting anywhere closer to where I want to be. I'm not achieving the success I am. I'm not having that fulfilling relationship. I'm feeling stuck. Yeah. And this is really important, Shannon, because it does go from sort of a mild, you know, I'm procrastinating once a week and it's fine. Um, And I'm seeing actually really high function people that avoid and they sort of delegate their things so they can avoid. So Sometimes it doesn't interference enough and it's just, you know, once a week you may have a few too many glasses of wine. But my experience is that for most people, when they really start to engage in psychological avoidance, it robs them from the life they actually want, mm-hmm. right? And, and so it's not just that it caused a little problem here, but like the way somebody said to me when I hit that wall, a colleague of mine who I absolutely love. I was really upset and I was talking to her and she's trying to counsel me. And she says, okay, I just have one question for you. Are you showing up as your best self right now? And that was an easy answer. And the answer is no. 
And she says, then figure out what's getting in the way. Right? And I, for me at that point is I was avoiding my reality. I was avoiding that what I was doing no longer fit what I wanted to do. And that who was paying the price was just me. Mm-hmm. You know, my boss was happy because I was still writing grants. The academia was happy because I was still publishing papers. Outside of the world, everybody's going to give me M&Ms. I wasn't sleeping well. I wasn't happy on my body. I had to put on 50 pounds. I was playing the price. And that's what I see with psychological avoidance is there's this hidden price tag that we just sort of lie to ourselves. That's okay. But if we sort of get naked with ourselves, not so good. Exactly. And this is where the anxiety comes in, right? Like people who maybe don't even feel like I have generalized anxiety disorder. It's just, I feel anxious and not realizing that a lot of that is because of this very avoidance that you're describing. Absolutely. You know, anxiety, stress, burnout, those are words that we hear again and again, and they are debilitating. But anxiety is not what keeps us stuck. What keeps us stuck is what we do when we're anxious. If what we do is avoiding, then that's what keeps us stuck. Because I have anxiety myself. I had it this morning. I woke up. I was anxious. I told you the last 48 hours I've been stuck on fear. And then this morning, I did actually what you said. I went, okay, what is one thing I can do that I know I can accomplish in the next hour? And then I turned off everything on my computer and I focused on one thing only. And when he finished, I was feeling a little better. It's not that anxiety disappears, but it's lesson. Yes, exactly. You know, it's funny, I have this post-it note. I didn't even realize this on my laptop because I'd realized that avoidance had come up big time for me. And part of that was in not have not giving myself fixed deadlines for when I want to achieve things by in my business mm-hmm. and constantly feeling like I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready. I'm not good enough. I need to learn more. All of that. All mm-hmm. the old stories. Oh, yeah. So I had a little post-it note here. What are you avoiding doing? This is right here on my laptop just to remind me when, you know, I'm ready to give up. And it's like, no, I I wanted to pay more attention to my so-called escape routes. And maybe mm-hmm. we can go into this after when you say about identifying how we avoid. But I was like, okay, you plan and you research and you prepare rather than do. Mm-hmm. I pursue another big idea. I let myself get excited by something else and don't focus on the other thing I actually have to do. I'd have like an emotional breakdown. Oh, it's also overwhelming. No, can't do it. Or I find somebody else to help me in some way to be like, oh, what do you think I should do rather than trusting myself? So I literally have that as a post-it note to when those moments come up for me (laughs) to try and, yeah, get on track. Shannon, this is so good though, because I think we should pause here because you just highlighted all of the major routes that people take. Seriously? (laughs) Yeah, because see, and, and they are really clever. You know, people that are high functioning have really clever ways to avoid. And that's why it's hard to catch, right? Because instead of saying, oh, I can't do it, you just think, oh, maybe I can find somebody a little more qualified. They can teach me how to do it or give me strategy. Women do this a lot. Well, I like a little strategy. So maybe if somebody gave me a little strategy, I can execute. But if you put in life death situation, you'd execute, right? <laughs> oh, you're calling me out hard. You would execute. It's just that you, you're not in a life and death situation. So that avoidance takes over. And it's so subtle. Right? I, I, funny, I didn't talk about this in this book. And I'll talk about it in the next book I'm writing about transitions. This idea of subtle avoidance. When it's not bad enough that the price tag is not high enough, but it's there. And it becomes this way of functioning in the world. And the way I hear, sorry to sort of poke at you a little bit. But what go I hear on, is, go for it. <laughs> poke at me. I'm ready. Well, I hear a bunch of subtle avoidance. They're all with the underbelly of like 
am I good enough? Can I do this? Yes. That is it. That is it. And the thing is, you know, you get to that point where you're like, oh, I'm so fed up because I've spoken about this so openly on the podcast. Like I've shared so deeply of how in my childhood I, you know, I had an absent father. I felt like I was getting recognition in school for achievements that that gave me the sense of praise and that sense of love that I think I was seeking so much. And it ended up creating a pattern, you know, and it's hard to break that down and then to really get to the core of that wound that hurts. You wear so many masks, you put so many layers all around it to prevent yourself from feeling that overwhelming shame and that fear that's buried within, Mm -hmm. you know, and it really is a journey I find. But let's simplify that journey for you today, because I think it will help a lot of people that are listening to us because, you know, give me your four things that you do again. Okay. I research, plan and prepare Mm -hmm. instead of taking action. Mm -hmm. I pursue another sparkly idea, something Mm -hmm. else rather than the thing at hand. I have emotional breakdowns, like overwhelm, Mm -hmm. just cut it, shut it all away and go Mm -hmm. away. Or I find somebody else to help me. Like you say, the strategy, find another expert, read all of that. And if the fear here is that you're not good enough, I'm putting words in your mouth, right? That like in in school, growing up, you weren't loved enough at home. And so therefore you got loved for the praise of school. And so to be good enough, you have to perform. Am I right? Yes. And so every time you engage in one of those things, what does your brain understand? So if you have a meltdown, what is it teaching your brain? That I'm not good enough, that I'm not capable. That's exactly it. And so those scape routes are only maintained because they reaffirm that belief. And see, the brain doesn't like when two things don't match. And so if the belief is I'm not capable, then every time you do something that's not capable, your brain goes, yep, not capable, no problem, still not capable. And it just maintains the belief. Ah, that is so good. That is so good. That's like an epiphany moment for me right there. Like not only going to the the core memories, the core beliefs, how that was all constructed in the first place, but the ways in which I and other people listening continue to reinforce that pattern through our behaviors. And it's it's biologically, the brain does this and, and it's like it makes a pretzel, right? And it basically wants to confirm what the narrative was because it's the path of least resistance, your whole life, that's the highway in your brain. And so Every time we engage in avoidance, what we do is we confirm that old belief. It's painful, by the way, right? But it's less painful than executing. Is it? In the short term, it is. In the long term, not so much. Yeah. And this is what brings us back to that like wall moment, right? Where you suddenly go, God, I'm just so fed up of getting in my own way or realizing like, yeah, I'm not moving anywhere fast. And by that, I'm also doing what you're saying, which is reinforcing that belief of not being good enough. See, I haven't actually made progress with this, or I'm still acting in that same way. Yeah. And so for you, the recipe, and the reason I wanted to simplify is the recipe is simple, actually. And no wonder you like the approach, not avoid. It's just one thing to execute. Say that you're going to execute that thing only for the next three weeks. And it doesn't matter what the shine object is, you close it off doesn't matter what it is. You just say, no China object. No, I'm not going to hire anybody. This is what I'm going to execute. And I'm going to execute imperfectly. But in the next three weeks, and your brain's going to scream, hell Mary, it's going to hate it. 
the, the meltdowns will increase momentarily, by the way, because once you take avoidance out, and that's why people don't fight avoidance, when you take it out, the brain goes, what are you doing? It's like the alcoholic that stops drinking, right? It's like, what are you doing? But over time, the brain goes, oh, there's no lion. And then we start to break the old pattern. So good. Have you got any other ways that that show up? I mean, that makes so much sense to me. And even the fact that you're saying to simplify it is super helpful, like to boil it down. But have you found, have you found any other kind of common patterns like that, that people have had, like a core belief that, that can keep being reinforced? So for everybody, the dance is going to be a little different. The core beliefs so that everybody listens to are things like, I'm unlovable. I'm incapable, I'm not good enough, I'm not enough, right? It's important to note that we also have positive beliefs. Like I always felt like I was smart, right? But I wasn't enough. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I have this example of a time that I got this paper accepted to a major journal in the US. I was the first author and it got accepted. Anybody in academia, this is like a big deal, right? It's like getting a promotion kind of idea. And my brain went, of course, it got accepted. The co-authors are so smart. I'm not smart enough. Mm -hmm. right? Because it had to maintain that I wasn't enough. And see, getting a major paper accepted doesn't close the equation with not enough. So the brain is always trying to prove it. And I think people sort of try to create all sorts of narratives. Um, a client of mine the other day said that, uh, this is a very smart client of mine who is finishing her second PhD. And, and she says to me, you know, one day I'm going to be successful. And I was like, they have to find success for me. And we have, a, and I said, okay, so you finished your second PhD from Harvard. She says, yeah, you know, but that's not enough. Like I'm clearly not successful. I said, because people, they're not successful, finished two PhDs from Harvard. And I kept pushing and she's like, you know, but I wasn't the first one in my PhD class and I didn't publish the most papers. And I was like, and look at that. Your brain's still trying to prove that you're not enough. And I said, when are we going to stop getting PhDs to prove it and start to work on being enough, right? Yeah. And, and to that point, I think it's important to just pause and understand what does it mean to be enough and what domains of our lives? Because there's not a quick fix here, right? And yeah. so- really pausing and understanding we're fighting a, a core belief and, and slowly starting to work on it. For me, it took writing this book to be able to sit. And I wrote the book between 4 a.m. and 7 a.m. for four months every day. And I would sit and I start writing. My brain would scream that I wasn't good enough, that nobody's going to read my book. And I was like, nope, I'm going against that belief. And I'd cry and I'd write and I'd continue. And when I finished it, I was terrified about how the world would see the book, but I could tell you that I feel like I am enough because I've integrated my story, that I will pursue all sorts of things going forward, but I don't have to do more to be enough anymore. And that feels so freeing. That's so beautiful. And, you know, I think this is what I, I said at the start, but I think this is why I was so touched by your book because I felt the heart that you brought into that, like the humanity, you didn't lose touch with that. And I think that is powerful. And it is what people truly connect with mm -hmm. beyond all of the psychological jargon, beyond the, the research, which is so important. It's so helpful. You know, of course it is. 
but we all want to deeply know that we matter and we want to be seen and heard and valued and you really bring that forward so and even what you're sharing now honestly thank you so your three steps that you outlined in your book We've covered parts of it, I guess, but you say it, this is really the keys in your view to transform anxiety into power. And you have these three steps, shift, approach, and align. Let's break down this a little bit. So we've talked about approach a lot. Um, and the last thing I'll say about approach is that if you're going to choose, if you're listening to us and you're going to choose to approach Keep in mind what I said before. It's not an hour or nothing. It's it's opposite actions, little baby steps towards discomfort because we are training our brain to be able to tolerate discomfort and eventually overcome discomfort. Um, shift is the idea that, and actually we went deep into shift already because at, at the deepest layer of shift, this is the idea that we are all wearing lenses, their core belief. And our core belief, I'm unlovable, I'm not enough, is filtering information in all the time. It's distorting information. The way I see it is almost like you're walking around with 3D glasses for so long that you just see the world that way. Right? And in the simpler version of shift, and the one I apply all the time, and my grandmother, again, is the one that forced me in the beginning to do this, is to really change the way we talk to ourselves. Right. It, it, I think we forgot as a society that thoughts are not facts. Right. <laughs> if I asked you to like see a pink elephant, you can see a pink elephant in your eye, but there are no pink. Well, maybe Disney has plenty, but in real world, there are no pink elephants. And so this idea that we need to observe what we are saying to ourselves. And the way to do this is to really talk to yourself as if you're talking to your best friends. Right. Have you noticed about this? When one of our friends in crisis, we show up and we're compassion, we're kind, we're understanding, and we, you know, are able to sort of see the big picture, widen our perspective. But when it's ourselves, it's like, nope, have to do more. Nope, not good enough. Nope, you're still not good enough. And so really shift is just shifting that perspective, widening our lenses to have more flexible brains. Does that resonate with you? It does resonate a lot. And for sure, I noticed myself doing it for so long that I would be my own worst critic, beat myself up constantly, and I would never dare to talk to somebody I love in that way. Never. No. And in fact, if we did, we'd have no friends or loved ones. Yeah. Can you imagine, hey, dude, you're really looking bad today. You know, you put on a few pounds and, you know, you need to study a little harder and you should have finished that business proposal. I, I wouldn't be your friend. I'd be like, oh, no. <laughs> so true. So true. Something there that you said about distortions. Is this where, is this also something where you talk about cognitive distortions? And when we introduce our shoulds or our black and white thinking, all or nothing thinking, can you break down a few of those as examples so we can catch ourselves perhaps doing this? Absolutely. And so think about our thinking as layers of an onion. There is sort of the knee-jerk thoughts that we have. Then there are like intermediate thoughts. They're like the conditions we have. And then in the center, you have the core beliefs. The automatic thoughts that we have, um, sometimes I think about them as brain farts, which we call them cognitive distortions. They are misinterpretations of facts. So you're walking down the street and you see somebody that you know and they don't say hi. And your brain goes, oh my God, they're mad at me. You jump to a conclusion. 
right? Yes. It doesn't consider that maybe they're busy, maybe they're upset, maybe they didn't see you, maybe they were listening to an audio. It ignores all facts and it jumps to the conclusion. And the conclusion usually, to be a cognitive distortion, has something bad about you, right? Or somebody gives you a look and you mind reading and you're like, oh, I certainly know they upset at me, right? We catastrophize. Um, I'm never going to be successful, right? Only smart people get to Harvard, black and white thinking, right? And so the idea here is that in any kind of distortions, there's no gray zones. There is one way or the highway, and you never in the positive, really. It's a perception there's something wrong with you, what are you doing that gets you stuck. Right. So then in those moments... Let's say to use your example of walking down the street and somebody shuns you. Your interpretation is that they're mad at you. That sounds like a little bit of when at least when I've experienced that, it's been a kind of anxious feeling and then yes. feeling inadequate personally mm -hmm. and worried and then overthinking what I should do or should I message them or replaying, rehashing situations that I had with them before or what I said and whether that was interpreted and all of that. Mm -hmm. In those moments where that happens, what should we do? So a couple of suggestions here. Um, the first one is look at competing hypotheses. What I mean is, what are the five reasons why this person may have ignored me? One is they're mad at me. Okay, let's put that in the equation. The other one is they didn't see me. The other one is that they look like they're on their phone. The fourth one is maybe there's something is going on in their life. The fifth one is maybe they have a business meeting they're late for. Right. So one is just widen your perspective. Try to see what slice and dice the alternatives. And the reason I suggest this is because then it doesn't become this black and white anymore. Right. If you do that, most of the time we can create enough flexibility, especially if there's no history that we can then go, okay, maybe it's nothing. I'll talk to them later. Okay. And that should bring the temperature down enough. Now, if you do that and you're still stuck, then my suggestion is, we're talking about shift here as a skill. My suggestion is moving from shift to approach. What can I do in this situation? Okay, I'm going to, instead of obsessed about this for 10 minutes, I'm going to pick up the phone and call that person. Hey, Bob, you just walked by me and you ignore me. What's up? <laughs> right? But, but see, it's so easy. And it takes, a, it, it takes a whole afternoon off of anxiety. Let me give you a personal example of this. I was uh, in Miami recently. And... I was walking out of a restaurant with my husband and this person's walking in. It was this like super fast thing and there was a super busy restaurant, a Miami restaurant. And we walk in there and I looked at my husband and I said, I think that was my roommate, Lauren. He's like, your roommate? And he didn't stop it. I was like, well, you know, in the end, it ended a little problematic and she, you know, had this thing. And, and, he's, and he's like, do you like her? I'm like, very much. And he's like, text her. And I was like, Damn right. So we're walking down. I texted. I said, hey, Lauren, um, I haven't talked to you in five years, but we're in Miami. I think I just saw you. And she's like, oh, my God, I am. And where are you? I want to see you right now. And then we reconnected and she came to see me five minutes later. And it was great. But I could have sat obsessing about this and obsessing about the history with her and how did she see me and what would happen. And I had a fantastic conversation with her. We loved it. We reconnected and anxiety went away. Exactly. And it makes me think of the title of your book, you know, The Bold Move. It doesn't need to be an enormous bold move, but in a way that is because so many of us wouldn't dare to do that. Or we go, oh, I'm going to bother them or, or, you know, and you don't actually do it. And then that ended up resulting in a beautiful encounter. 
That's it, Shannon. And I'm so glad you brought this up because I, I you know, I struggle with the title of this book um, because I was afraid that people were going to think there has to be like this major thing. A bold move is just waking up and doing something that's meaningful to you, right? If you're avoiding the gym and for a week you go to the gym every day, it's pretty damn bold, right? It doesn't have to be a big step. It just has to be something that's aligned with what matters the most for you. Exactly. And now for your third step in transforming anxiety into power, let's talk about align. So I sort of just went there as I was defining bold move because the third step is really this idea that when we are anxious, we tend to do whatever anxiety tells us to do. That's what psychologists call an emotion-driven life. So in the case of walking down the street and somebody ignoring you, you feel so anxious, instead of asking or calling the person or texting, you're like, well, you know, maybe it's about me. As you said, if you're inadequate and then we don't do anything, right? We do what emotions tells us to do. The opposite of this is a values-driven life. Values being the things that matter the most to us, family, friendship. I mean, the reason I texted Lauren is because friendship has been a core value of mine. And I was like, you know what? Why, why not? But, and so what we know is that if we align our values with our actions on a day-to-day basis, we live a happier, less anxious, more satisfied life. And I actually do this a lot these days. You know, once a week, I try to look at my calendar for the next week. And for me, I've identified three core values right now. That being impact, that's why I'm here with you today. I want to actually make science go viral in the world. Family and health. Health because I fought obesity my whole life. And so if health is not there, I'm going to be in trouble. And so I look at my calendar for the next week and I go, okay, what are my meetings? How are they scheduled? Am I aligning my actions with those values? Because when I am, I have better weeks. It's not that I'm working less. It's not that I'm not stressed, but I'm less stressed. When I drop it its head, I end up feeling paralyzed or fearful like I was. I love that. That is such a helpful, practical strategy that somebody could do to really step back. And even as you gave the previous example of widening your perspective, of zooming out and then being values-led and intentional about how you want to live your life. I've not done that, but I'm going to give it a go. So you said about looking at your calendar, highlighting three key values that you've decided are important to you and working out whether your actions are in alignment with that. And it's also a great way to catch avoidance because whenever we're not living a values-driven life is when we're procrastinating. It's when we are, you know, planning, researching, but not executing, right? Because execution usually is because there's a value that's important. So if there's something in your business that's really important, then if you're executing again on that again and again, you start to feel better versus, and so think about this as a way, it's like when you're doing activities, is giving you energy or taking away. If it's taking away energy, very likely it's because either it's not aligned with your values or you're compromising an important value. You're sort of doing it, but it's not really the value that matters the most right now. Love it. So let's go to a kind of summary. If you could walk us through the overarching view of these three steps that people could take away with them as they finish this episode and think, okay, what can I do now going forward today, tomorrow to really implement this into my life? So if you want to become bold, the first thing I'd say is being bold is not being fearless. Being bold is living a values-driven life. And so 
I would start with really identifying your core values and taking a value assessment and thinking about how can you add more actions that are aligned with your value. As you choose to do that, you're going to run into obstacles. And so choosing to approach and not avoid. So planning those things to have early wins. You know, if, for example, health for you is a value like it is for me, you can't go for not exercising to run a marathon. We know that. But every time we try to go values alignment, we tend to take on too much. And so approaching slowly. The baby steps. The baby steps. I think about baby steps and setting up for an early win. Early wins are important because it gives you motivation, right? It goes against that core belief. And the last piece is always checking what you're saying to yourself, right? If thoughts are not facts, then why are we so mean to ourselves? And so really understanding how we're navigating the world, what we're saying to ourselves. And, you know, when it feels too heavy to your point or too difficult, call on a friend, call on a partner, say, hey, listen, I'm stuck here. I did this at lunchtime today. I had a half an hour walk with my husband. I was struggling with something. And I was like, can we talk this out? And he listened and stuff. And then we got home and I was feeling better. And so we don't have to do it alone. You said this a few times today. And I think it's important for people to understand that there's so much power on togetherness. Yes. Beautiful summary there. And in the context of this podcast and people starting over, I love it because it's so helpful for people to not get overwhelmed by the enormity of their goals or of the change or the difficulty that they're faced with, but really to break it down and go step by step, moment to moment, and be aligned to what matters most. And that is our values. I mean, Mm -hmm. you even say research backs that up. Like this is not just something that we talk about as airy, fairy, la-di-da stuff. This is real. This is like if you want to live a happy, meaningful life, you need to know what is important to you. A hundred percent. There's more than 300 published studies on acceptance and commitment therapy. That's all about this idea of values living life, values driven life. And um, I personally knew as a researcher, as a clinician, and I'm much happier now that I've aligned every action with my values. I love that. You're amazing, Dr. Luana. Honestly, like, let's finish up here. But before we do, I want to ask you a quick final fast few questions. Sure. And I want to say, is there something you used to believe that you no longer believe? That's an interesting question. You got me stumped there. Is there something I used to believe? Like something you've really unlearned in your life in some way? Sure. I think I think that, that it's a personal one. Uh, it's interesting because you asked that question and, and my academic brain went for like science and research. And I was like, well, a lot of this is sort of what I believed as, as a teenager, um, that I'm not enough. I, I lived a good chunk of my life believing that I was enough. And I have mostly giving it up. Their core belief almost never shows up when it does. I catch it pretty quickly and I go, no, I'm not buying. And have you deconstructed the kind of avoidance things within that, like you say, that keep reinforcing it? You're very aware of that? A hundred percent. So for me, my my avoidance was the best one. Um, I became overproductive. So whenever I feel anxious, I would do more and more and more and more. So I'm the opposite of the procrastinator. I just you know, on my postdoc here, I was so anxious I was enough. I published nine papers in a year. I was miserable, but I did it. And then I was like, what am I doing? And so whenever 
I'm stepping only on the gas, I remind myself there's a break. Mm. Second question, what is one of the best pieces of advice that you have received that's really stuck with you? I have to go with approach, not avoid. Yeah. I have to. She 100%. She's got the goods. <laughs> and, and lastly, what is a closing message that you would give to our listeners here today who perhaps have recognized through this podcast that, in fact, they've really been avoiding quite a lot. They never thought about it before, but turns out they do it very frequently and they're ready to change. What would you say is the final message to them? You are in control of your change. And I know change is scary, but if you embrace that discomfort, you can do it. I I still am puzzled by how a little girl growing up poor in Brazil and up at Harvard, but it was one small step at a time. And so don't take my story as a hero story. Take my story as choosing skills every day to get to the life you want. And if you want it bad enough, you can do it. So wisely said and beautifully spoken. Dr. Lana, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and that of your ancestors as well, or your grandmother and other important people in your life. Your book, I really recommend it, everyone. It's super tangible, beautifully written, a lot of heart. Like I said, it's called Bold Move. And other than that, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Shannon. Please continue to inspire people to start over with grace and is delightful to be here with you today. And thank you to all of you listening. I hope you found this episode inspiring, helpful, and thought-provoking. And just a final word from me, high praise to you all for continuously choosing healing, self-awareness, and growth. I totally believe in your ability to make change, surmount challenges, and build a life worth dreaming about. 